2: Celebrate the Chicago Reader. Join us to see the Reader come to life at our second annual Ungala Wednesday, October 18th, at the stunning Epiphany Center for the Arts. We'll have Reader-approved entertainment, including Grammy Award-winning Peter Cottontail and local rockers The trenches, DJs, live art, and other performances. More details are at chicagoreader.com/ungala. That's chicagoreader.com/ungala.
1: Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, October 17th, starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes youth director and voice program coordinator with Communities United, Maria DeGillo. The Ben Jarofsky show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. Do you want to know where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink? Are you visiting from out of town? You can find out all the information you need to know just to spend a little time at chicagoreader.com. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky when this show's over, or if you want to check it out while you're listening, head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y.
2: Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Stay Home Branded Tuesday. And here's why. Before I explain why, Let me just do a little promotion. This just came in, breaking news in the Ben Jarowski Show. I got this text today from my partner in crime, Maya Dukmasova. Yes, it's confirmed. First Tuesdays on the first Tuesday of November, November 7th, 7 p.m. at Maria's, 960 West 31st Street. That's 960 West 31st Street. Get there. Get in your car right now. Go and drive down to Maria. Get there early. (laughs) Three weeks early. I'm waiting for first Tuesdays. Uh, we'll be talking Asian-American Pacific Island political power in the city of Chicago. Alderwoman Nicole Lee will be there. Alderwoman Lenny Mona Hoppenworth will be there. I'll be there. Maya will be there. Maybe my guest Maria Tagilo will be there. Who knows? Maybe I can talk her in the coming down to Maria's. 960 West 31st Street. I don't want to hear any excuses. Now, we move these shows from one the side of the city to the other side. I don't want to hear North Siders go boom. It's the South (laughs) Side. No, get your car, take the train, ride your bike, walk, get there. One more time. (laughs) Maria's, 960 West 31st Street, November 7th. Nicole Lee, two older women. Nicole Lee and her old friend Lenny. Lenny's got a... Lenny can talk some national politics too, ladies and gentlemen. She's not just local with her. Oh, no, she can talk some national politics. All right, let's get back to... uh, Uh, stay home Brandon you know the world is filled with so much gloom and doom and violence and just heartbreak these days it's always nice to know that my beloved city of Chicago can be a source of a little I don't know entertainment because the way we things do, do things here politically man you guys are so weird Chicago I've tried my hardest to understand you I've lived among you for all these years and I've tried so hard to understand you All I know, since I moved to Chicago in 1981, Maria's like, damn, you're old. Yes, 1981 is when I moved to the city of Chicago, all right? Ever since I've been here, it's like, we're a city that can. We're a city that does. We're a city of builders. We reverse the Chicago River. We built ourselves up from the fire. Oh, a few busloads of migrants come up from the border in Texas. You're also already in a fetal position, Chicago. We can't do anything. About the only thing that lefties, liberals, centrists agree on is we can't do anything. We're helpless. You guys are pathetic. Okay. Oh, my God. Ten City. Lefties get mad at me. I know you get mad at me, Lefties, when I criticize Brandon Johnson for Ten City. You know, Lefty Ben, give him a chance. <laughs> Come on, man. That is pathetic. That's how you're going to deal with it, huh? We can't build all of a sudden. We forgot how to build a building. It's You don't know, forget what a hammer is, and a nail is, huh? You don't want people in the city of Chicago that need work? I could take you to neighborhood after neighborhood where we got tons of people who need work, particularly in black neighborhoods. Why don't, one more time, city of Chicago. We take a program that benefits Venezuelan immigrants and use it to help black people in Chicago. Whoa, that just blew your mind, Chicago <laughs> No, nope, Ben, we can't do two things at once. We can only help one group of people at a time, because we're from Chicago. Meanwhile, every dumb idea for a high-rise, <laughs> gentrified community, oh, no problem doing that. Oh, no, Lincoln Yards, no problem. 78, no problem. They want to build that monstrosity on uh, right across from Soldier Field. They're ready to do that. No problem. problem. Well, can't do any building for uh, re- uh, immigrants coming up from the border. It's just too overwhelming. We're just overwhelmed. Anyway, the part about this story that's just so classic is that Mayor Johnson at one point um, said he would go to the border and see firsthand for himself what the situation was, which I applauded him for doing. Instantly, of course, everybody else in the media was like, no, stay at home. There's so many pressing problems in the city of Chicago. God forbid you try to get some firsthand knowledge of what's going on. So Brandon Johnson feeling the heat. I guess all his, you know, his uh, communications specialist. They got together and he goes, oh, "Mayor, I don't think this is a good idea. We'll get ripped in the Sun Times. We'll get ripped in Cranes. We'll get ripped in the Tribune. The only one who'll defend us is that weirdo old lefty guy in his attic, and that's not enough." <laughs> so Brandon Johnson pulled back. He announced that he's just going to send some aides to the border, some assistance. He's not going to go because he's pressing business. <laughs> the thing. What pressing business? Seriously. You introduce your budget, you can go down there. Now, I'm not giving, calm down lefties, calm down. I'm not giving Mayor Brandon Johnson a hard time for this, okay? I understand the games that he has to play to take care of the mainstreams. They're outraged. How dare you leave the city of Chicago when we have a budget? (laughs) A budget. You guys realize a budget is just a projection. You know that, don't you? You know it's a game. You, You understand that? I hope you understand it. We'll maybe have a budget talk and explain it. They don't like really need Mayor Brandon Johnson. In fact, I think he would benefit from going to the border and seeing firsthand what the situation is. Anyway, so uh, he's not going to go. Instead, he's going to send some aides. And this is from the Sun Times reporting. He's gonna, <laughs> folks, you got to laugh at this stuff. So here's what it says. The team of uh, mayoral aides also wants to establish Quote, better lines of communication about the steady stream of buses now ignoring the city's 11 p.m. curfew. And here you go. Share information about extreme housing and weather conditions now facing 18,500 asylum seekers who've already reached Chicago. More than 3,500 are sleeping on police stations and airport floors. End of quote. Yeah. You know what that means? You know what that's a euphemism of? They're going to start talking. They're going to find somebody who speaks Spanish and they're going to tell them, oh, come. Don't come to Chicago. It's cold. It's really cold in Chicago. You don't want to come to Chicago. You know what? If you come to Chicago, we're gonna stick you in a tent. There's no heat. Don't come to Chicago unless you're rich. If you're rich, come on. We got plenty of places for you. We'll build places for you. Don't come to Chicago. Go to North Dakota. They're gonna have people from Chicago tell them go to North Dakota. Go to South Dakota. By the way, that there you go. Right now, like everybody in mainstream in Chicago like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's just send people on the border and tell them to go to North Dakota. Plenty of jobs in North Dakota, ladies and gentlemen. And they won't stick you in a tent. Anyway, that's the, uh, then here's my, come on, one more thing before I bring on Maria. Is very patiently waiting. Brian Hopkins wades in. Brian Hopkins, the alderman of the second ward. He's chair of the Council's Committee on Public Safety. Ooh. It's an important job, Brian Hopkins, so we need to hear what he has to say about this. Uh, one more time, ladies and gentlemen, Brian Hopkins uh, was the main cheerleader uh, for the Lincoln Yards TIF deal, over a over billion dollars. Uh, That's funny, they had over a billion dollars for that thing. Not going to help anybody, but they had a billion dollars for it. So uh, Brian Hopkins uh, says that uh, uh, the Johnson administration is still struggling to execute the mayor's plan to, quote, open winterized base camps to get migrants off of police stations and airport floors. That's harder to do when you're standing on the banks of the Rio Grande instead of the banks of the Chicago River, he said. Come on, can we all give Hopkins credit? Got off a zinger there. He made a joke. You know what the funny thing is? Like the, 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 the supposition, the, sort of the, uh, the, like the point of his, his little wisecrack is that Brandon Johnson himself is going to be building the tents. So he's not going to go to the border, Brandon Johnson said he's going to stay home in Chicago and build those tents. (laughs) What a joke. You are pathetic, city of Chicago. Pathetic. That's me saying that, not my distinguished guest, who's very patiently waiting by and does not think the city of Chicago is pathetic. She thinks I am pathetic for saying the city of Chicago is pathetic. Maria DiGiulio, welcome to my humble little podcast.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much.
2: I am not going to ask you to weigh in on that great riff. I uh, I think I just pretty much emptied everything on that riff, so we'll leave it pass. Uh we are going to talk instead about something completely different. Uh something that we had talked about Maria, not with you and me. You're your first time on my show, but uh that I had talked uh I want to say it was 20 I've lost track of time. 2022 or 21 about police in schools uh, and um, whether the city of Chicago should continue uh, to pay to have police uh, patrolling our high schools, particularly our high schools. This is a very controversial issue. I guess it really erupted in the summer of 2020 and then uh, uh, went on in 2021, uh, et cetera and so forth. So why don't you uh, first introduce yourself uh, to my audience uh, and uh, tell folks where you're from uh, in terms of what organization you represent, and then we'll take the deep dive. Go ahead,
0: yeah, sure. Thank you, uh, first for having me here. Um, very humbled by your So love it. Um, my name is Maria, I'm the youth director at Communities United. I started community organizing when I was 15, so I turned 17 in community organizing years this year. Um, but I think it's pretty important to know why education is um, the passion that I have. Um, So I actually grew up in Philippines. I came here when I was 10. Um, My family waited 13 years to come to this country. The average wait for a Filipino, so I might go to that Asian Pacific Islander thing, Um, (laughs) um, the average wait for us is 23 years. And my family waited 13 years, right? And so I come from a huge family, seven brothers and sisters. I'm number six out of seven. By the time that we got our visas to come to this country, I was already over the age of 20. uh, I wasn't, sorry. My brother was over the age of 21. And so he had to apply for his own visa. When that happened, my family got separated. And it's interesting that you start off this podcast with immigration because immigration was the first issue I ever felt passionate about. And that was because when my family separated three years after waiting for his visa, um, my brother couldn't take the uh, family separation and so my brother started drinking, he got liver cancer, we applied for a special visa for him to get medical care here, his visa came two days after he passed. So when I was in middle school, I was going through it. And, you know, one day this dude comes to my house and he's getting people out to vote. And my mom's like, do you handle teenagers? Because this one's kind of a troublemaker. I go downstairs with my phone and I'm like, what do you want? (laughs) And I started going to the meetings because they had free food. And I was like, yeah, I love food. I love free food. But when I started going, I started talking about how the immigration system actually hurt my family. How this is very common, and this is not a Latinx issue. This is a an issue an issue all immigrants face, right? The the separation that your family goes through, um, the waiting that happens, the living your whole entire life waiting for a visa card to come here. And then um, when I was in high school, I got really, really depressed and I was going through a lot of mental health. I didn't know how to grieve. I was 17. People were like, You're 17, why are you sad? Um, that doesn't make any sense. And I ended up cutting class. I I cut class a lot and they taught me and the woman at the main office was looking through my paperwork and I and I remember her saying, Oh, you're 17. You might as well drop out. And then I was like, what? And the next thing I know, I was in the counselor's office. My counselor was telling me how high school is not for everyone, blah, blah, blah. And then they transferred me to an alternative school. But I didn't go to really go because I still had mental health issues. I still needed support. So I got kicked out of, of uh, alternative school because I wasn't um, showing up, but I was still depressed. So <laughs> nothing got fixed. You just moved me to another place. And that's why I feel so passionate about education. That's why I've dedicated 17 years of my life, more than half of my life, into this work. Um, So that's who I am, and and that's why I'm here today.
2: Wow, Uh, that's, uh, I could take the deep dive in that story, that the high school that she attended, uh, I'll just reveal this, was Von Steuben. Uh, I have a bias for Von Steuben, Maria. I think it is it my favorite high school in the city of Chicago? I don't want to say that because then other high schools will go, what about us? Uh, but I do love Von Steuben. I love Roosevelt, which is right down the street from Von Steuben. So it's like Von Steuben and Roosevelt, my two high schools, yes. uh, rivals for years and years back in the day in basketball. I don't think so much anymore, but, um, so I have a question for you that goes back to what you began with. Because There's so many things I could ask you questions about, but, I wasn't planning to ask you this question uh, when we began the conversation, and uh, I wasn't even going to planning to have this topic as an issue. But you raised it, and I would love to follow up. So, looking back on your family and your family's story, what is it about the United States of America that makes it uh, a place that? I'll just keep it uh, straight to your family. You and your family really wanted to get to that. You waited all those years for that visa. What is the promise of America that drew you?
0: Well, I grew up really, really poor. Um, it's not like um, American poor. It's like third world country poor. Um, we had a large family. My mom only went to like fourth grade, you know, and, we were always raised that education was one of the ways that you could break poverty. Um, It's either that or you were born rich. So, you know, in order to break poverty, you know, you don't want to always continue living your life or you don't know when you're going to eat next. You don't know if you have a home to go home to, You, you don't know what to do because you don't have any resources. And so, you know, to us in Philippines, at least at the time that in my family, you know, coming to the US was an opportunity to break out of poverty. It was an opportunity to live in which you can breathe freely, not, you know, not worrying about what's going to happen next, right? Um, So we were sold on the American dream. That's what the American dream is. It's the opportunity to break out of poverty, to make a life for yourself, to, you know, to to be to be okay, um, that's what it was, and that's why we came here because we knew that there was a lot more opportunities in terms of education, in terms of jobs, in terms of supporting your family and creating the kind of life that you want to have. Um, so that's why we stayed like we we stayed wanting to come here. Um, yeah
2: And uh, has it proved to be has it fulfilled the dreams? Or did you have like a crash course in the reality of America?
0: I think, um, it, you know, it's really interesting that you asked that because I think like, you know, when I was in my country, we romanticized you know, the American dream because why, why wouldn't you? You don't have any other information, right? Um, and then I came here and I, I went through the education system. Um, you know, we didn't know the education system. It's very different from what we had back home and all of that and I think like and I tell my partner this all the time I tell my friends this all the time like while you know the systems here in Chicago specifically or the U.S. is not is not the best that it could be it's far better than what I had experienced and this is why I am so dedicated and the young people I work with are so dedicated into improving the systems that we have, especially our education system, because it does stand true here that one of the ways that you can break the cycle of poverty and the cycle of violence is through education. And this is why it's far more important that we actually create environments in schools that are safe and that are healthy, that we don't have parents who drop off their kids at school and then pick them up at a police station that very same day. Like that is not something that we should have because we could actually... Do better, and that's the reason why you know there's so much. We it's not perfect, but it's getting better. And you know, the whole school safety initiative that we um, launched is actually something I'm really proud of as well. And our young folks are super proud of it because it's actually Chicago is actually leading the nation in how to create partnerships and creating a sustainable solution to having you know holistic approaches to safety in school without the police that's huge and we're the fourth largest school district in the entire country
2: all right uh so let's get into that a little bit and we'll and we'll we'll start with your story and then we'll move forward uh when you were in the public schools of chicago you went to high school did you yes. go to grammar school as well uh, with the public schools or did you come to chicago just from high school
0: well I um I came here and I came here like the second semester of fourth grade
2: oh okay um, yeah
0: so I did go to middle school here I did a little bit of elementary school and then I did middle school and high school here
2: all right so when you were uh, what middle school did you go to
0: I went to Albany Park Multicultural Academy
2: yeah uh shout out Albany Park I love that uh, <laughs> uh and uh shout out Vince Carter uh and um so when you were at uh, Albany Park and when you're more important, when you were at Monsteuben, Steuben, did you feel safe in the school? For, forget what what you were going through, whatever anguish you were going through in your mind uh, over, you know, your brother's death, et cetera, and so forth. Did you feel safe in the school?
0: Well, I think that's a good question. But then that asks the question of, well, what does it mean to feel safe? Like, are you talking about, did I feel physically safe? I grew up in the neighborhood Oh, you know, I felt physically safe because I knew most people there. Abma or Albany Park Multicultural Academy was, when I went there, was still in the same building as Bon Steuben. Um, so I was very familiar with the place and yeah, I felt physically safe, I guess, because I knew the people there and I knew the neighborhood very well because I grew up in Albany Park. However, I think safety is far more than that. Safety also means like being, you know, mentally well, emotionally well, like spiritually, like all right. And in that case, no, I wasn't, right? Because I, I remember one time I, ca- I cut class and I, I thought I was so clever in high school. Oh my goodness. And then... <laughs> So I was like, oh, I'm late. So I'm I'm just gonna go to the psychologist's office and just like kind of drop by and get a note that says I'm late because of this. I thought I was so I thought I was so smart. And then I I, I went in there. I never told yeah. anyone this, so this is really funny that I'm saying it in a podcast. But <laughs> I went in there and as soon as I walked in, I can you
2: curse at your show? I, yeah, oh my god, are you kidding? Every word in the world has been uttered on my show. It's so go ahead. Just feel free. Let your freak flag fly. Go. Well,
0: well, I shit you not. I walked in that office, at the, the psychologist's office, which by the way, we didn't have every day of the week, right? It just so happened that it, we had it that day. I walked in and I started bawling, like crying, like uncontrollably. And and the psychiatrist was like, are you okay? And I was like, I don't even know what's happening, and I'm just like crying. I originally went in there to just get a late note, but I just I I don't know what happened. I I still to this day I I feel like I I just was overwhelmed, and didn't really have anyone to talk to, and you know I grew up in a in a family where you know, at the time, like, mental health wasn't a thing, like, you're you're too young to be depressed, what are you doing, like, we strive to be in this country, and, and you're the smartest one out of all of us, and you're dropping out, like, you know, like, that kind of notion, that stigma around mental health is very much alive in the, you know, in the Asian immigrant community, or at least, like, in my family, it was, and so I say that because, like, I felt, I guess, physically safe because I knew the neighborhood and I I knew everyone and I I walked those streets all my life, or at least at that time. But mentally, no, I I wasn't all right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And uh, uh, so how does this relate uh, to the presence of police officers uh, in let's just stick with high schools in high schools? I have an answer to the question, but I'd love to hear your answer to the question. Uh, How does the feeling of vulnerability uh, that you just explained and expressed uh, relate to the notion that somehow or other a police person, a police presence in a school will make you safe? Go ahead.
0: Well, you know... It's, it's good to kind of get an understanding of how we got to this in the first place, right? So, you know, back in, like, the 60s, we started getting, like, more security guards and all of that, and then the 70s, we started adapt, uh, adapting, like, the model of, like, having police officers in schools, and a lot of that was, you know, the Columbine shooting happened and all these, like, mass shootings that were happening teachers didn't feel safe you know all that stuff adults in general didn't feel safe right um and they started bringing police into schools now mind you (laughs) coming to now it's been 50 years since we revisited why what it meant to be safe in schools to this today's context um so in 50 years we haven't really had that conversation around like well, what is safety? When you asked me, did you feel safe? And my answer was, what do you mean by safe? Yeah. Right? That wasn't necessarily the, the, the reaction back then, right? The reaction is like, if you want to feel safe, then you need police officers, it's police officers, because that's what safety means. We didn't know or we at least we maybe we knew, but like we didn't have a distinction between safety and security. And the knee-jerk reaction is to harden our schools. So you know when the recent school shootings happen, like the first thing we think of is like, oh then we need metal detectors, we need cameras, we need all this, we need, we need to make sure that Everybody is safe. And to be honest, like a lot of those solutions, those quote unquote solutions, is out of fear, right? Either adults are scared of young people or they're scared for young people. Mm-hmm. But the issue is that they never talk to young people <laughs> to talk about what makes young people feel safe. And that's what makes the whole school safety different because it, you know, it actually centers young people into the decision-making process, into the process that allows them to dissect what it meant for them to be
2: safe. Do you think schools should have metal detectors?
0: That's a really good question. And I think like, to be honest with you, like I would ref- I would defer to having a process where young people are actually engaged and they can tell you what they think. Because to be honest, like, if I tell you, Ben, like, oh, yeah, I feel safer with metal detectors or I don't feel safer, what does that matter? I'm fucking 33. I don't go to the high schools.
2: This is on my mind for a lot of reasons. One reason I think about this is that uh, there was a shooting at White Sox Park that has remained unresolved. I don't know if you follow these things, Maria. Why do I have the feeling uh, that you're not a huge sports fan? I don't want to put you make any kind of judgments about you. But anyway, there was a shooting at uh at White Sox Park. Uh and you have to go through metal detectors to get into White Sox Park. And it's Maria, it's it's like like this mystery. You go, who had the gun? Where did the shots come from? And the White Sox are determined to say it came from the outside the stadium because they don't want people to be afraid of somebody getting a gun into the metal detector. They want people to feel it's safe. Uh which I just find it the notion that the bullet came in from out side of the park preposterous if you know anything about how the park is situated so i think they're just trying to like blame the neighborhood around white Mm socks park for something (laughs) in that they don't want to confess about uh and uh so i think about this a lot you know what i'm saying Like there's so much gun there's so many guns in the world um i personally was against metal detectors back in the day like when, mm-hmm. when the issue first came up in the city of Chicago I remember the principal Whitney Young uh back when the city uh, mandated metal detectors let's say this is in the 90s don't quote me Marie. I think it was in the 90s because I wrote a story about it and um she said we're not going to have metal detectors at Whitney Young we're not going to have that kind of school and I respected her for saying that uh on the other hand I'm like <laughs> damn these are such dangerous time people are, everyone's packing and..." Uh, you know, if we can just keep guns out of the schools, we're that better off. So I am torn on this issue. I'm, I, I, yeah. I get what you're saying. You should relieve it up to the kids. I'm not sure. I want to leave it up to the kids as a father of kids. You know what I'm saying? I kind of. I like, mean, well, that's what I'm,
0: my point, right? Like, as an adult, we're either scared for young people or we're scared of young people. But we also have to take into account, right? Like that. The physical environment of the school does impact the culture of the school. When you you own something, right, you take care of it more, especially if you've never had it before. When you feel like you're a part of your school and you own a part of that school, you're less likely to do anything to harm it and that's the whole reason behind restorative practice right like people always think that restorative justice is this thing that you do when some stuff goes down and it's like oh you need a circle just slap a circle on it like we're we're good you know and then if it doesn't work they're like oh that's because restorative justice doesn't work the reality is that restorative justice is actually an approach to building a culture the it's a preventative like tactic it's a It's a strategy that allows you to build ownership and a welcoming culture where everybody feels like they're a part of something. And schools are institutions that our communities rely on. That's where our young people gather for like eight hours of the day, five days a week. So this is a main institution. And so if we are having a culture of where they have to go in and they have to go through a metal detector they have to get worn down they have they're being watched everywhere the windows are barred you know they get told when to leave how to leave what to eat when to eat like doesn't that sound like something to you ben
2: yeah it sounds like a prison right uh
0: You're not even going to give young people the right to talk about what makes them feel safe
2: yeah well let's talk about restorative uh justice again This is not something I thought we'd be talking about now on the show, but I'm really glad we are. And this is on my mind a lot these days uh, with um, the war in the Middle East uh, with Israel bombing uh, Palestine uh, in response to uh, uh, Hamas uh, slaughtering all those people a couple weeks ago. And it's like it never ends. It's just a cycle. It's like, you shoot me, I'll shoot you. That's how we do it. And I keep telling people on the mic, I go, that's a far greater example, greater magnitude of what like how we approach things in Chicago. You know, Maria, like Chicago's got that retaliation culture so deeply embedded in its head. You hit me, I hit you. How many times have I heard that since I moved to Chicago? So many people everybody's tough in Chicago. We're so tough, by the way, we can't handle building a bunch of housing for immigrants. But that put that aside. Uh, but everybody when it comes to other things, tough I'll punch you. I'll show you. Chicago's always punching back. You know what I mean. Everybody's tougher than the other guy, and I'm not tough, Maria. I'm gonna just be honest with you. There's I'm usually the guy getting punched. <laughs> like, oh, that hurt. Uh, I was not good at boxing, to put it mildly. I didn't like punching, and I didn't like getting hit. All right. Um, That's fair. Uh, but I just don't know how we could break. You know, I hear it everywhere. I hear it in politics. Politicians, aldermen talking tough, and they're gonna punch this one and punch metaphorically. And remember Lori Lifewood? I'm yeah. gonna show you Jeanette Taylor coming down from the uh the, the podium gets in Jeanette Taylor's face. I'm gonna show you what 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 is that? What kind of message is that? Can't just have a discussion and a debate. It's not okay that Jeanette Taylor disagrees with you. You're gonna show her, You're gonna go get in her face. That's that Chicago thing, you know what I mean? But it's obviously it's worldwide. Mm -hmm. um and uh so what is what could you do uh in in your humble opinion yeah
0: so can i tell you okay let me tell you this crazy story because um i was actually talking to a reporter a little bit ago and this reporter i've known her since i was like a teenager right and she goes she asked me what um how are you sitting in the same, like sitting next to Jay Dean now? You know, Jay Dean, the chief of safety and security in, in Chicago public schools. And I and I bring that question because um, I remember when I first started organizing when I was a teenager and my main role literally was like, because I worked in education. So I was like, They got a new chief of safety and security officer. She's not a police person for the very first time, like doesn't have that background. Um, But my role was literally like, I was planning press conferences and rallies outside her office almost on a weekly basis, you know? And I would go to all the board meetings and I would talk about how much like the stuff that happened, blah, blah, blah. And then when summer of 2020, Um, we had the pandemic everybody was like what does it mean for us to be safe health-wise you know everybody is sick we can't even go out Mm -hmm. and then people were you know and then George Floyd was murdered and then people were like well what the hell does it mean for us to be safe in our community because the people that are supposed to be protecting us are killing us and then I was working you know I worked with my young folks and my young folks were like How can I be safe when those same uniforms that are killing my people on the streets are in my school? What does it mean for us to be safe in this school? And so in the summer of 2020, Voice Voices of Youth in Chicago Education, which is a project of Communities United, um, we were on the streets almost every week during the pandemic. Sometimes three times a week, depending on how, you know, what opportunity was out there to really get our message out there that we needed police out of schools. And so we've been very clear since the very beginning that we didn't want police in schools. And then all, you know, we worked with um, Alderman Sawyer, we worked with, you know, um, all of our folks on the ground and just like kind of really pushing this message. And one of our leaders, Caleb Reed, um he was he was so good and he would just talk about what does it mean to be to to love and care for our young black men and this was around um like the summer late August I got a call um it was like Thursday this was a I think it was a Thursday night and then he calls me Caleb my uh young person he was 17 he lived on the west side but Um, between back and forth between the west side and um west ridge and he called me and i usually don't do this because you know as a youth organizer you gotta have boundaries and blah blah blah, but he needed money for dish soap so i was like i was like okay yeah yeah i'll send you know i'll send it to you of course and he's like and he's always been like my baby so like i always call him like my son and he's like you know like a friendly way obviously i'm not his mom but like you know he was like oh um I know I can't wait to be at the meeting next week because he was going to lead our meeting. And he was like, what roles can I have, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, you know, you can do this. And we can talk about whole, you know, and that wasn't whole school safety, but we can talk about police in schools. Like we could talk about our issue. And he was like, okay, that sounds great. And I was like, I was like, and he was like, yeah, um, I love you, mom, you know? And I was like, I love you too. I'll see you later. He's like, all right. And then two days later, he was shot and killed. And that to me was like, what the hell? He was 17 <laughs> um, and he was fighting for, for safety, um, especially for young people of color, especially for our black men. And this issue, that's why it's so close to us. Cause like, you know, this the issue of school safety and safety in general, is life and death for us? This is Chicago, right? Like, we're trying to be safe too. So, then on, um, I think it was the 23rd of December, Jadeen calls me from the Safety of the Office and Security. And she's like, you know, um, telling us that she's proposing a partnership between us, um, four other organizations, and CPS. And I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> <a> partnership <laughs> and i was like i was like yo i gotta call my young people because i don't know like at the time i could not i mean i don't trust anybody this is like you, you were talking about this is not one of those things like you get hit you hit back like that's what it is right but then um i talked to my young people and my young people were like how do we know she's gonna do what she said how do we know that she's gonna be real like you know and i was like i, I I don't know, like, tell me what you want. Like, what do I tell her? <laughs> tell me what to do. And then we basically told her like, okay, at the beginning we were like, all right, J.D. And like, well, we'll go into this partnership. But just so you know, I have like 10 reporters on my cell phone. And I've got <laughs> really good relationships with them.
2: That's hilarious. <laughs> you do
0: anything. You do yeah. anything that's, that we didn't agree on or it sounds like you're kind of going to bite us we will be the first one to blow the whistle on you and we will (laughs) go down with you. Like we, and we remember, we're going to be in every single meeting. So we'll know every single detail. Like (laughs) you will blow this up from the inside. And I bring bring this story because when we're raised in a culture where we are always in fear that something's going to happen, it really limits us into what we could achieve. We took a huge risk with school safety. I'm not, and now Jadeen, like she's one of my greatest partners because there's transparency there, but that took years to build then. That wasn't like something we just all of a sudden trusted each other. We are, some of our meetings are still have tension because it's like, well, this is what the community wants. This is what CPS wants. So this is what we need to do. We can't be, you know, telling people what to do, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that we cannot live in a world where all we want to do is hit back. At some point we need to work together and we need to find a solution that gets us to our goal.
2: Uh the, the uh, J- Jadine uh, that uh, Maria keeps pointing out is Jadine Chow, who is the head, she's got chief of safety and security uh, with the Chicago uh, public schools. And I believe she got that gig, correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will, Maria, uh, under Lori Lightfoot. Didn't she get that gig under Lori Lightfoot? Or was she was uh, she before no. Lori Lightfoot? Before
0: the, I think 2012.
2: Dang, has she been there that long? Wow. She has. That's what I'm I'm saying. Yeah. And
0: you know, she's actually like, she's also an Asian American woman. I have a lot of respect for what she does because to be honest, like it's hard.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I get it. 2012. Um, my apologies, uh Jadeen Chow. I did not realize you've been there since 2012. Uh but now, the article that you sent me, and a little shout-out uh, to uh, Becky Vivia uh, from uh, Chalkbeat, who wrote this uh, great story. I urge everybody to go check it out. She may have been one of the reporters in Maria's phone. That...
0: <laughs> Shut up, Ben.
2: <laughs> she may have been one. On... You know, I just pushed this number, and I'm right to her, Okay. <laughs> Uh, anyway,
0: you don't, you don't go in this, uh, for 17 years that not have a couple of reporters named oh, Ben. Now you're on my phone. <laughs>
2: uh, hey man. everybody out there to get those reporters in your phone book, call them when you need them. Okay. Put them to use. They're good for something. Uh, and, uh, anyway, uh, so. The um the story points out uh, how you uh, began. Uh, here's the I'll just read the lead uh, that Becky wrote. Uh, youth organizer Maria Paula DeGillo used to protest in downtown Chicago against the high rates of suspensions and expulsions for students of color. Now she collaborates with Chicago Public School to create safe school environments without harsh discipline and over policing. Today, Tagilo, with the group Voices of Youth in Chicago Education, is joining the District's Chief of Safety and Security, Jejean Chow, at a City Club of Chicago event to highlight the partnership forged between the district and community organizations over the course of the last decade to improve school safety. I just have to laugh at that. First of all, the City Club, I, we always make fun. Don't, don't get mad. I mean, we always make fun of the City Club on my show I actually was invited to a city club meeting uh, once. Man, they're all like, let me hear for lunch and I'm going to understand the problems of the city and they get back to work. I uh, just make fun of the city club. But there you were at the city club with Jadine. What was that like? Uh, let's talk about that collaboration.
0: Um, it was different. I've never been in a, I mean, maybe I have, but like not to that capacity where we're talking about our work and you know like I said like you know my history with my relationship with Jadine wasn't always on the same side so to be literally sitting next to her so so Becky was the one that asked me she's like how does it feel to sit next to her and I was like girl I can't believe you asked me that (laughs) she goes like yeah like I have to ask you and you know I understand like the curiosity there because you know, Jay Dean and I actually laugh about this now because we're just like, remember how we met? <laughs> and, um, it was, you know, to be honest, it was, it was great because it wasn't just me and Jadeen. We also had a principal, the principal at, um, at Austin. She was there too. Um, and they had removed one of their SROs and, um, put more money into like other holistic approaches. And then we also had a young person there from MICVA and he was super dope. And, you know, it was good because we were able to talk about the collaboration that it took to get to this space. Because, you know, we started technically like we launched in January of 2021 as the whole school safety um, initiative. And in three years, then we have been able to reallocate $10.9 million from the SRO program into holistic approaches. And we reduced the number of school resource officers by 47%.
2: And I'm going to read it from Becky's article. And what does SRO mean again? Oh, school
0: resource (laughs) officer.
2: School resource officer, yeah. Everybody uses that acronym and I I always forget what it means. But this is from Becky's article. Good job, Becky. Uh, Here we go. Quote. In June, the school board approved a $10.3 million contract with the police department to station 57 officers at roughly 40 high schools that have voted to keep them. It's a fraction of the 140 police officers stationed at district-run high schools in 2019, which cost roughly $33 million that year, end of quote. So just think about that, ladies and gentlemen. They're now they went from $33 million a year in 2019 to $10.3 million a year uh, with police officers in the school. One of my biggest objections, uh, to this is, um, I believe in local decision-making. You can respond to that when you want Maria, like if Maria, if a school wants to have the police officers and that's what they want, I believe they should have the school officers where I, apart from the city, where they, do businesses. I don't believe the Board of Education, the Chicago Public Schools should be paying for those police officers. I should, I believe those money should be coming from the police department because in this city, you can't cut police. Brandon Johnson learned that uh, when he ran for election and he he promised uh, when he was running against Vallis, I'm not going to cut a nickel. And the current budget does not cut a nickel. Uh, and so you cannot cut police uh, particularly when crime is high, you can't c- cut police anyway, but particularly when crime is high, so if you can't cut police, then put the police that are in the schools on the police budget and guess what, Maria? they'll never get cut, okay, and you could spend that ten point three million dollars on art or I don't know drama or I don't know pick a pick a subject that get how about how about vocational training? Hello, Chicago. <laughs> put people to work teach them a skill sorry i didn't mean to go on a tangent but uh but that's how i view it so i think it's a very impressive uh that that somehow other we moved on this issue from 33 million to 10.3 million i still think the uh, police department should pick up the change what's your opinion about giving each school uh the decision uh, on whether there should be police in the school
0: Well, remember, I told you my organization in the very beginning, our fight, like, you know, Caleb and myself and like other young folks were calling for police out of schools. That's always been our our position, right? Because we wanted, you know, because a lot of our young people talk about how they do not feel safe in the presence of police. However, we entered into the whole school safety initiative, knowing that if we are going to give local control to local school councils to decide for themselves, they should have all the information they need in order to make that decision. So we wanted to be a part of the design process. We wanted to make sure that young people were a part of the conversation, that they were consulting their community, that they were doing right, you know, by the process that you know, if done right, is actually a great democratic process um that allows for local control that is based on data. You know, there's one thing that, you know, I was just at a, an event where they talked about, you know, school shootings are responsible for 1% of the mass shooting, right? But that stays with us because that's, that's traumatic, like, of course. But, you know, We need to have a process where we allow people to address their emotions, but also have a process where they're looking at data from their school, their local data, that allows them to create that decision that is informed. And so one of the first steps of, you know, being a part of the whole school safety committee in your local schools is that you have to look at your discipline data in that school year and talk about what are the issues that your school specifically is facing. And then your just your solutions, right, if you were going to opt out of an SRO, you have to be able to keep that money, so your money does go back to you. And then you could pick from a menu of choices that was, you know, curated by our young folks and parents and backed by the community, Um, that is a holistic approach that has three points that they touch. It has to be about physical safety, emotional safety, and relational trust. If you don't hit all three points, that's not even an option on the menu. So you have to be able to do that. And I agree that if, you know, the process is that people have local, you know, control, but they have to have conversations that are transparent and informed. And we need that.
2: What did you mean by relational trust?
0: It means like, remember I told you, like in high school, like I didn't really talk to anyone and all that. A lot of our young people don't feel safe enough today. T- today, our young people don't feel safe enough that they could talk to someone. Um, yeah. Relational trust is having a relationship with an adult or a peer that you could trust that if you're going through something, you feel safe enough to be able to you know, say that, oh, I have a relationship. Like if you were a teacher, Ben, and, you know, I'm sure I would be like, oh, Ben is super dope and he's really funny. Like, you know, if I was feeling sad that day, I would definitely tell you, you just have that personality. So someone needs, people need that Mm -hmm. um, to feel safe. So, you know, I young people today shouldn't have to answer the way I did where I was like, well, I felt physically safe because I grew up there, but mentally I wasn't safe. Our young people should be able to say, yeah, I feel safe in my school. I know a lot of people that have a lot of positive relationships. I am physically safe in that community and in that school. And, you know, I feel emotionally safe Mm because I feel that people are going to be there for me if I'm going through something.
2: Do you think that the, the city should have more along these lines, like counselors, therapists in the schools?
0: I think that we need a lot of those and we need a lot of other resources too. Like the some of the things that you named, like vocational training, right? Because some people are, you know, hands-on learners and they're not interested in the traditional academic, you know, route. We also need resources that, you know, allows for artistic ability, right? Like I've had the uh, pleasure of working with Stein in High Schools before and man, their journalism team, oof, I was like, <laughs> out of this world, bro. Like, I can't believe you have learned from <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Yo, this is so cool like a lot of my young folks was uh from Steinman's way back when and they were so good and writing was such an outlet for them you know Communities United we have another uh, program called Bikes and Roses where our young people actually um they bike as an emotional wellness like they you know it's a way for them to heal from trauma it's a way for them to escape so like we need resources like that Right, that you know, taps into other um, other parts of our identities um, that makes them feel safe. So, a lot of restorative justice, we do need therapy. Like we are very outnumbered on our social workers, and most of the social workers we have, or the counselors we have in schools are not even like about mental health they're about academic health you know yeah. so we don't have that and then we share nurses and we share psychologists so there are times where i know when i was in high school and then i hear this from the young people now they're like also oh, i'm only allowed to like scrap my knee like on wednesdays because that's when they have them <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny but it is but it's like <laughs> i'm sorry so yeah we need money for those things
2: yeah man it's uh <laughs> I just, it always uh, blows my mind. 2019, the uh, teachers went on strike to force, they had to go on strike to force the city of Chicago to hire more nurses in the Board of Education. And, and then they got, they still get reamed. How dare they go on strike? What if, what if, you're not going to do this if they don't. You're not going to hire the nurses. They, they had to go on strike to get more nurses. And instead of thanking them for like, giving up their pay and jeopardizing their lives to, force the city to do what it should have done anyway that powers that be how dare you weird city we live in
0: uh, it is very the weird. roses
2: part of bikes and roses
0: oh um it's it's really dope so like when we were i was still younger then but i was already an organizer but some of our young folks um they really loved alternative rock first of all so it's you know the band comes and roses but Um, they would bike literally everywhere in the city, right? But then there was like, not a lot of bike lanes, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, so there's a lot of advocacy that does go into the work Bikes and Roses. But the other things that they do is like they do community bike rides. So basically it started with young people riding around like in bikes all the time. And then they had this idea of like, why don't we have a bike shop? (laughs) And our organization was like, All right, we'll try this out. (laughs) Now we have a shop um, on 4600 West Palmer where some of them basically, they do after school matters too, where they teach people how to build a bike and then they get to keep it. And they do community biking. And um, I think right now they have a partnership with the city about building the bikes that the city has. And and, I mean, it's, it's huge, but it really came out of the need of young people to leave their home and, and not, they didn't have money for buses either. So a bike was the best way to go. Um, and they biked everywhere and they talk about bike safety, the need for lanes. They talk about environmental justice. Like it's crazy because it started with like literally like six of them, just kind of like talking about the importance of biking. And now they're huge and really proud of them.
2: That is awesome. Man. You know, and um, no, I say this to the guy who's really not good at mechanical things my wife on the other hand she's unbelievable okay can we just brag about her for a moment she could teach that bike course but um it's like i just need more
0: female female instructors too so that's good that you brought that up
2: <laughs> no d- definitely oh my god i knew a uh, shout out to terry an old friend and terry um could take a car apart woman, and she could take the car apart and put it back together. And she would always try to get me. She would teach me the principles. Ben, you, you like there's a system here, and you just have to have the patience to follow each part. And you could go back, and you could retrace your steps, and you could understand how this car is assembled. And, man, I'd be like, "Can we have lunch now?" I was like, "Everybody game. has their
0: strong point." Yeah, <laughs> I, everybody's
2: got their strong point. That's correct. I could talk about everyone. That wasn't
0: my- mine either. So. <laughs>
2: But the point is, is like there's a lot of kids out there who share these talents that Terry and my wife have that have these uh, abilities that are better than mine and they should be developed. I just had an electrician on the show who's one of the strikers at the, um, at the UAW strike. Uh, and uh, she was talking about how it broke her heart when they would be dismantling uh, these vocational shops at various public schools. That's, she had a job doing that for a while. And they would just, everything was computer labs. And it's just, who knows, like what thought tear down the the shop, you know what I'm saying? And just put up a computer lab. Just that's where the world's going. Computer labs. And I'm like, I know it doesn't have to be one or the other computer junkies out there. So Mm -hmm. calm down. But I'm like, you know, it just seems so short-sighted, Maria, you know, it's just
0: But that's what I'm saying, that if you actually involve the people that are affected by issues, they're able to Lay on the wisdom. One of the biggest issue that we face in education is that we feel that young people don't have much to offer, you know, in a way that, you know, we don't listen to them when they need when they say they need something or they want something because they're young so we feel like we, you know, we don't need to listen. But, you know, if we talk about, so for example, like Prosser Career Academy, they have a mechanical, like, you know, they have an amazing shop. At one point, Bikes and Roses was there too. Like, you know, there's so many, there's a lot of good things that is happening in our schools, but those good things happen when you listen to your community and you listen to the parents and the young people that are there, because they can guide you. But we need to value that type of wisdom. We need to value the wisdom of lived experience.
2: That's as good a spot as uh, any to uh, end this conversation. Value and the wisdom of lived experience. I'm writing it down. Uh, Anything you want to say before I let you go? Anything you want to promote uh, in the universe? The microphone is yours, Maria.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're having our Gathering of Communities um, event on November 11th. Um, It's a way for us to actually talk about what it means to have a strategic plan in creating a healing-centered city that is um, led by Communities United. We're partnered with Lurie Children's Hospital to do this. And then we also have other organizations from across the city doing this work. So it's on November 11th um, at 10 o'clock, I believe. And it is going to be at uh, UIC. So I'll send you a flyer, Ben, but I'd love to see you there too.
2: I probably can tell you tell you right now, I will not be, wait 11th. Is that a, what day is it? It's a Saturday. Oh, a Saturday. Uh, Usually I'm waking up at about ten. Don't let that get around.
0: You know what, Ben? I'm going to tell everybody that you wake up at eleven o'clock in the morning every Saturday because you feel like the world just needs to stop talking to you.
2: Yeah, I'm like, (laughs) I I talked enough this week. I think I'll sleep (laughs) to eleven. Anyway, Maria, thank you so much uh, for taking time. Come talk to me; it was a blast. We'll bring you back. We'll talk about all the issues, schools. Uh, We can talk crime, policing strategies, restorative justice. I, I. Wholeheartedly with you, 5 billion percent on just trying to break that cycle, not just in the Middle East, where it's completely out of control, obviously, but uh, here in the city of Chicago, where it's pretty out of control, anyways. I punch you. You punch me, I punch you. And uh, people think that's so the way to go about the world. And I just. Uh, maybe just hold a grudge inside for a while. Like, That's not healthy either, Ben. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than punching someone. Don't you at least it's like you know what I'm saying? It's like a, a strategy to wean you. Okay. Just hold a grudge for a little while. Like Ben does and his mother. <laughs> uh and Lori Lightfoot for that matter. Anyway, uh, Maria, thank you so much. It was a blast talking to you. All right.
0: Thank you so much. Have a great day.
2: All right, very good, Maria. And I also want to thank Producer Chris. He does an outstanding job on the show, and I think uh, Maria will agree with me when I say, hey, Producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody.
1: And you can always catch up on previous Ben Jarovsky shows, Benny J. Bonus interviews, you want to check out columns, that new newsletter Ben Jarovsky just dropped, head to chicagoreader.com. You can sign up for everything right there. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J show. He just passed a thousand followers. People tell your friends and make sure you follow like, and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.